The text for our sermon this morning is Hebrews chapter 3. We'll read the last verses of the chapter, 16 through 19. Hebrews 3, 16 through 19. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with who was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. I'd like to call our kids forward. Well, the verses that we just read contain three questions that are very important questions. The first question is, who, having heard, rebelled? In this question, Paul is asking us to think about the people that Moses led out of Egypt. Among these people whom Moses was leading to the Promised Land, who heard the message of the Gospel but disobeyed God? And the answer is, many of them disobeyed God. Many of them did not believe in the promises of God. So I hope you can understand that in the promise of God to bring His people out of slavery in Egypt and to give them their own land, that there was a picture of the Gospel. The Gospel is the message that in Jesus, God saves sinners. He loves His people in Jesus because of Jesus. The promise of a land of their own where they would be free to serve God, where they would not be slaves, this is a picture of the Gospel. God saves His people and only God can save His people. So the great sin of the people whom Moses led out of Egypt was that they did not trust God to save them. And if you read the Bible book of Exodus, you can see this very clearly. Over and over and over again, God blesses them, protected them, fed them, but all they did was complain and say that God was not with them or Moses just wanted to kill them in the wilderness. And they actually said it would have been better to have stayed in Egypt. Can you believe that? The people of God had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And every day they prayed that God would rescue them. And then when God sends Moses to lead them away from their slavery, they complained and refused to believe God. This is very sad. But it is not unusual behavior. This is what all sinners are like. This is what we are all like. Unless God gives us the gift of faith, we will never trust in Jesus to save us. And so we will rather live in sin. We will rather try and save ourselves. We will rather die as unbelievers, just like these people that Moses led out of Egypt. The second question is, with whom was God angry 40 years? And the answer is those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness. Here's what happened. The people complained and complained and complained that God was just trying to kill them in the wilderness. They refused to listen to Moses and they always doubted and disobeyed God's Word. So finally God said, okay, you want to die in the wilderness? Die. Everyone who is 20 years old and up is going to die in the wilderness. But your children, the ones you said would die out here, 
They're going to go into the promised land. They will experience my blessings. They will enter the land of rest. And so, God made them march around in the wilderness for 40 years until everyone who was 20 years old and up was dead. And only then did Moses bring them to the land that God promised. And then Moses died, and Joshua led them in to the promised land. This is exactly what happens to everyone who does not trust in God's Word and does not trust in Jesus to save him. His life becomes like a wilderness. He wanders around with no rest. He cannot rest because he's too busy trying to do for himself what only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can free us from the burden of sin. Only Jesus can give us love in our hearts for God. And as long as we try to do what only God can do, there can never be any rest. And the third question is, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? And the answer is, to those who disobeyed. You see, disobedience to God always comes with this curse. The Bible says that there is no rest, no peace for the wicked. They're like the sea that's always moving in waves and constantly bringing up mud and dirt and sand from the bottom and throwing it up to the top. And Jesus said, Come to me, all who are tired of carrying the heavy burden of sin, and I will give you rest. These people whom Moses led could not enter the promised land, which, as I told you last Sunday, was a picture of heaven. They, even though they got out of Egypt, Egypt never got out of them. Their hearts still loved the sinful ways of Egypt, and because of that, they didn't believe in God or trust in Him, and so they couldn't enter His rest. They did not go to heaven. I want you to listen carefully to the rest of the sermon because we're going to talk more about this. Now we're going to pray and then you can go back to your seat. O Heavenly Father, Thy Word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We, however, are blind and incapable of doing anything good. And Thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere Thy Word. We entreat Thee that Thou wouldst illumine our darkened hearts and minds with Thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom in order that we, hearing Thy Word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning, though it's connected thematically, organically, to last week's texts, in a way it kind of stands on its own. In other words, we can explain it properly without bringing in a lot of background explanation. Because the text is a series of questions that we all know the answers to. So, without further ado, our outline is as follows. Number one, a mixed multitude. Number two, unbelief in the visible church. And number three, unbelief deprives of rest. So that first point, a mixed multitude, I've used that phrase a number of times in my sermons with reference to the church, and I want to show you its source. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 and 38, we read, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also. 
Last Sunday, I described the visible church as being composed of three factions, and I appealed to this particular Exodus mixed multitude as the demonstration. We said that the three groups were A, the fiercely faithful. This is uh, represented by Joshua and Caleb. Secondly, there were the unbelievers, represented by both the non-Israelites among the people and that older generation who refused to believe in God. And thirdly, there was the younger generation, the 20 below, who suffered the brunt of their parents' unbelief. Now, I want to flesh this out a bit more to explain the makeup of the church. Within that latter group, there were believers and unbelievers. Some of the unbelievers were natural outsiders to the covenant. They were the children of the Egyptians who had decided to, to, that the God of Israel was better than the gods of Egypt. And so they followed out into the wilderness to have a share in the blessings of, the, of covenant life. Some of the unbelievers were true-born Israelites, but as Paul says in Romans 9.6, not all Israel is of Israel. These are people who had been born into the covenant. They had been circumcised as a, as a, as a sign of God's name being called over them, and yet for all that, they refused to believe the promises of God. Paul cites this very issue in 1 Corinthians 10 in order to make the very same point. The New Testament church often has members who are members only externally, but are not true partakers of God's covenant. So I want to revisit something we said last week about the, cov- uh, the continuity between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. You see, the Old Testament narratives could not be applied to New Testament pastoral concerns unless the New Testament church were the continuation of Old Testament Israel. This is one of the best arguments against the wicked system of dispensationalism, in my opinion. The citation from 1 Corinthians 10 actually proves this point because Corinth was a Greek city. This was a Greek congregation. And Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1-5, through I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Without batting an eye and without a whole bunch of explanation and hair splitting, Paul calls the generation that left Egypt in the Exodus our fathers. He includes these ethnic Greek believers in Corinth in the lineage of the Old Testament church and says that the Israelites who were freed from bondage in Egypt are their fathers. Now having said that, I'd like you to notice the the diagram that I put in the bulletin. That picture is how we should view church history. It shows us that the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church are organically one. And this is not a theory invented in later generations. This is exactly what the Bible has always taught. In Acts 15, at the famous Jerusalem Council, which met to discuss the fact that non-Jews were coming to faith in Christ, God caused the elders in Jerusalem to understand that this was exactly God's plan all along. James says, 
Simon, that, that's Peter, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. These Gentile believers are now incorporated into the people of God, of which Israel was the sole representative prior to Christ's ascension. And James further says, with this, the words of the prophets agree. And to prove that, he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, which read, On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Do you see it? Non-Jewish believers in Christ are prophesied of in the Old Testament, and even there, they're incorporated into the tabernacle of David, and God says they are called by my name. And what this prophecy is really foretelling is that the inclusion of Gentiles into the body of the church will be God's way of restoring the collapsed and damaged church of the Old Testament. So in one sense, the very existence of the book of Hebrews in our New Testament is, better, is a better argument for this than anything I could come up with. I don't want to go further wide of our point. I just want to show that the composition of the Old Testament church, that is, being visibly comprised of true and false members, is exactly what the Scriptures teach about the New Testament church. And that's the warning in Hebrews 3. And that, in turn, leads us to our second point. There were unbelievers in the visible church. Now, last week, we spoke at length about the existence of unbelief in the visible church. And again, I think that, that Exodus 12 is of great help to us here. When Israel left Egypt, the visible church had within her bosom the seeds of a great downfall. Within the pale of the church were thousands of rank unbelievers. Now, they might have shown some outward conformity to God's covenant, but it was only outward conformity. It was not genuine. And I'll give you a couple of very simple examples. When God sent manna to Israel for the first time, God gave them very clear instructions about collecting it. They were to collect a specific amount daily, and they were not to leave any of it for the next day. Uh, just as an aside, I'm sure that this is certainly what is in view in the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Anyway, many of the people decided that they were smarter than God and they collected way more than they needed. The next day, the manna from the day before was rotten and infested with maggots. Simple instructions, but they just wouldn't obey. And they wouldn't obey because they didn't really believe God and His Word. And then they were told that on the day before the Sabbath, they were to collect twice as much and God would miraculously preserve it edible for the Sabbath. What did they do? Some didn't collect any and found, and found that there, they had no food on the Sabbath. Others went out to try to collect it and found that there was no manna. Again, simple instructions, but they just wouldn't obey. And they wouldn't obey because they didn't really believe in God and His Word. But for the next 40 years, everybody followed this procedure. But it wasn't because they truly feared God and loved His Word. It's because this is the only system that worked. It was pure coincidence that what they were doing happened to be in outward compliance to God's Word. They were driven by utilitarian purposes. I do it because it gets me what I need. 
And that's a fact that is on full display across church history, whether it be Old Testament Israel, congregations of the New Testament, or New Testament churches from the era of the apostles to the present. Let's probe this a little bit deeper, though. The presence of the unbelievers in the church presents a strong and persistent temptation to unfaithfulness. Israel's history demonstrates the bad results of ignoring the existence of unbelievers in the visible church. Let's begin with the prohibition in Exodus 23 against making treaties with the Canaanites. That was God's way of telling them about the danger of outside influence. But two battles into the conquest of Canaan under Joshua and things have already gone awry. The people of Gibeon trick Israel into making a treaty with them. And when the ruse is discovered, Israel decides to make them servants. I mean, obviously the Gibeonites prefer this to being slaughtered, but it sets up a very dangerous precedent. Many times later, in the books of Joshua and Judges, we find Israel deciding to let live cities that God had consigned to death and to make them servants like they had done with the Gibeonites. Fast forward several generations. 1 Kings chapter 9 tells us that Solomon took the descendants of these Canaanites whom Israel failed to destroy, and he made them forced labor. No Israelite, remember this, no Israelite was made forced labor. Israelites were given prominent military positions and and high-ranking government positions. When Solomon died and his son Rehoboam went to Shechem for his coronation, when he gets there, there's an underground rebellion against the house of David. Inside the visible church, there was a movement well underway at this point to reject Christ as the king of, of his church. Jeroboam, the ringleader, incites the people to say, your father made our yoke heavy. Lighten the heavy yoke that he put on us and we'll serve you. Solomon hadn't placed a heavy yoke on any Israelite. That complaint comes from the descendants of the Canaanites. People outside God's covenant were complaining about the burdens of the church. The people leading the movement to reject Christ through the dynasty of David were the children of these unbelieving Canaanites. The visible church overthrown from within by people who had no business being in it in the first place. Canaanites directing church policy. The people who could legitimately say, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse weren't members of God's covenant in the first place. Likewise, the people who lusted for the comforts of home, and home was Egypt, these people weren't true partakers of the covenant. Whether they were ethnic Egyptians or Jews who were actually Egyptians in heart is irrelevant. They didn't believe God's word. And this isn't just weird Old Testament behavior. 2 Corinthians 6 warns us, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And that brings us to our third point. Unbelief deprives of rest. I want to read our text again so that we can refocus our thoughts on what it's teaching us. 
For who, having heard, rebelled? Was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So, we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Notice, there are three questions. Three questions and three answers. We're catechism people, so this should make perfect sense to us. It reads like this. Question one. Who, having heard, rebelled? Answer, those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses. Question two, with whom was God angry 40 years? Answer, those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness. Question three, to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? Answer, those who disobeyed. And then there's this summary statement that, that defines the whole thing in one thesis. They could not enter into his rest because of unbelief. Last Sunday in the children's sermon, I said that Canaan, the promised land, was a picture of heaven. That's true. And in this respect, it is analogous to the Sabbath. The Lord gave the Sabbath as a foretaste of the eternal rest from sin that God's people will enjoy in heaven. Let me restate that in a slightly different words. The Lord's Day is a picture of our rest from sin. That is, our eternal liberty from the power of sin and the enjoyment of God's presence forever in heaven. Thus, the Lord's Day is a picture of heaven, a foretaste, a promissory note. Heaven is the true rest for God's people. So when God promised Canaan to Abraham's seed, He was giving the church a promissory note of the eternal rest of heaven. And the weekly Sabbath was a reminder of this promise. Now, I know that that seems a bit off topic here, but it will start to make sense when we get into chapter 4. Right here at the end of Hebrews 3, Paul introduces this concept of rest as being equivalent to entering the promised land. And then in chapter 4, he's going to show us how this rest is something that neither Moses nor Joshua could give. True rest from sin only comes through Christ in eternity. Now, look, I can't take a promissory note to the store and buy groceries with it. Nevertheless, the promissory note represents money with, with which I can buy groceries. But what I really want to focus on can be seen in the title that I've given the sermon, The Restlessness of Unbelief. And I want to look at the restlessness in two categories, the two categories of people. First, those outside the church, the pagans, the followers of false religions, the practical atheists. And then secondly, those who profess membership in the church, some of whom are believers, some of whom are not. Now, that first category, this is everyone, every unbelieving worldling there is. This is everyone who is not converted to God. And of course, there is no rest for them. There is no peace for those who reject the source of peace. If you won't bow your knee to the Prince of Peace, what else can you expect but turmoil? Restlessness is ingrained into the world of unbelief, and it manifests itself everywhere. I mean, just, just look at society. What does history present to us but a never-ending parade of the damned which believes that the things which betrayed their forefathers will work for them this time? Acts for which the average Joe would have imposed, you know, of, uh, of yesteryear, would have imposed the death penalty are celebrated today and often by the so-called guardians of conservatism. 
To paraphrase Dabney, conservatism never conserves anything. All it ever does is protest each aggression of evil and saves face by the amount of whining it does, but in the end, it always just caves in. What conservatives resisted yesterday, they'll be championing tomorrow, and this sad charade will repeat itself as long as they can keep selling the fiction that they are on our side. But let's ask the question, why is it that the wicked never find anything that finally calms their restless souls? Why do the unregenerate run from lust to lust, from fad to fad, from hashtag to hashtag, from trend to trend, never finding any rest? Someone once said that the two most disappointing things in life are not getting what you want and getting what you want. And pop culture is full of that kind of despair. Over 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Scripture declares that the wicked are like the troubled sea which cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's like the law of diminishing returns. The first time you do that thing that you know is wrong, your pulse gets faster, you start sweating, you get upset to your stomach, your hands are clammy. The second time you commit that act, the thrill is less. And the more that you persist in it, the less you find it paying off. And pretty soon, you're engaging in acts you wouldn't have dreamed of a few short years ago because the thrill of your favorite sin just isn't what it used to be. That's God's curse upon the wicked. They are like the sea that cannot rest. It is morally and logically impossible to rest while one lives in a state of war against Christ. Now, you can believe that or disbelieve it. It doesn't make any difference. It's still true. You could deny the law of gravity till you're blue in the face, but you will not thereby achieve weightlessness. The result of defying gravity will be well-deserved physical pain. You can deny the existence of God and your moral accountability to Him all you want. It doesn't change the fact that you will one day stand before Him in judgment. Deny it all you want. In your heart of hearts, you know that it's true. Pretending to not believe in God will not get you off the hook of accountability to Him. And the result of persisting in unbelief will be well-deserved eternal pain. Now, let's examine the restlessness of unbelief as it affects professing believers. And I want to be cautious here because not everyone who commits an act of unbelief is an unbeliever. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is unbelief, whether lived in or merely dallied with, always leads to unrest. It's not like, oh, you committed a sin so you're not a Christian. But sin whether committed by a believer or unbeliever, looks the same and proceeds from the same unbelief in God's Word. And this is where we need to pay close attention to our text because this is to whom Hebrews is addressed. Let's think back to our three questions then. Who having heard rebelled? With whom was God angry 40 years? To whom did He swear that they would not enter into His rest? There's something very important to notice there. One can come close to the kingdom of God and yet for all that still be outside. Things just never change. 
Paul is giving us, he's giving his readers, a 1,500-year-old illustration because human nature is human nature. Strip a man of his clothes, set him in the jungle where he has to hunt and forage for his food, or dress him in $3,500 Armani suits and chauffeur him around in a limousine, or put him in overalls on the back of a tractor in rural South Dakota, his human nature is the same. Whether he communicates with smoke signals or iPhones, whether he entertains himself with gladiators fighting to the death, or by playing pinochle, his human nature is the same. Men have always doubted God. The primal sin committed in the Garden of Eden was unbelief. The devil's temptation was, Yea, hath God said? There is no sin we commit that isn't at heart a result of not believing what God in His Word has said. And one of the main causes of unrest for professing believers is that they're engaged in the fool's errand of trying to earn the unearnable. Salvation is a gift from God. It is not a prize to be won. Now, I know that that sounds cliche, especially in a Reformed church, but it's true. The most natural thing for a person to do, even a professing Christian, is to unchrist Christ. That is, to insist that his or her works must count for something in the matter of salvation. But believe me when I tell you, you don't want that. You really don't want that. If you could understand what's involved, you would flee to Christ and His righteousness instead of trying to figure out what you got to go do. And I'll prove that with some very simple questions. Should a Christian read his Bible every day? Do you? You want to stand before God and argue your right to eternal life? Your right to heaven based on how faithfully you read your Bible? Should a Christian pray every day? Do you? You want to stand before God and argue your right to heaven based on the strength of your prayer life? Should a Christian forgive those who sin against him and forget those sins once he's forgiven them? Do you? Have you never brought up someone's past sins or faults that you've claimed to have forgiven? Have you never dredged up old grudges so that you could win an argument? Do you want to stand before God and argue your right to heaven based on how sincerely you forgive and forget others' sins against you? Should a Christian love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you? Have you never preferred recreation to attending church on the Lord's Day? Have you never preferred entertainment over Bible reading, prayer, or devotional meditation on God's Word? Should a Christian honor God's name because He is God and King? Do you? Have you never made God's name or His Word a, a, a frivolous joke? Have you never used His Word casually? Have you never invoked God's damnation upon yourself or others in a fit of anger? Should a Christian avoid sexual sins? Do you? Have you never looked at another person and entertained impure thoughts? Should a Christian be thankful and content with God's provisions for his needs? Are you? Have you never been jealous or envious of the possessions of someone else? And before you say no, let me ask you if you've ever purchased a product in response to a commercial, because about 99% of the appeal of commercials is to our desire to have things because other people have them. Have you never felt this? Should a Christian always speak the truth? 
Yeah, do you? Have you never stretched the truth or slanted evidence in your favor? Have you never knowingly misled someone for your benefit? Have you never denied doing something because you didn't want to get in trouble? Should a Christian value human life? Well, do you? Have you never harbored hatred toward your fellow man? Have you ever never secretly dreamed of someone dying just so they didn't bug you anymore? Have you never slandered a person's reputation thereby murdering his good name? I mean, I hope I don't have to pursue this line of questioning any farther. I I hope the point has been made. If you realized what's involved in earning salvation, you'd never entertain the thought of such folly. God promises salvation to all who place their faith in Jesus and His righteousness. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. Now, we can have that perfect obedience reckoned to our account, or we can go it on our own. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what shall I do to be saved? Paul answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, don't do Christ did for you what needs to be done. The sin of that unbelieving Exodus generation was that they didn't believe that God would sovereignly bring them into the promised land. They believed that the only rest they would ever have is one that they carved out for themselves. In other words, I must save myself. God may give me a little help now and then, But at the end of the day, it's all about me and my works, my will, my efforts. And this is the unbelief that killed them in the wilderness. The wilderness of works salvation, whether it appear under the guise of Romanism, Arminianism, Mormonism, or any other system that puts the ball in your court. This wilderness of works salvation will kill you just as surely as the Sinai desert killed the unbelievers in the Old Testament. They could not enter in because of unbelief. 